You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan, here on the 11th day of June, 2021. And you're tuned into episode 403 of The Corbett Report podcast, Meet the World Economic Forum. Now, it is a fact so inescapable that I'm sure even the most casual of observers will have noticed it over the past 18 months of this generated crisis, that seemingly every part of this new normal build back better agenda that is playing out right now bears the hallmarks and the fingerprints of the World Economic Forum and its associated cronies. And as Exhibit A uh, for today's exploration, I will, of course, point you to the most obvious example, the most infamous example, the World Economic Forum rebranding of that very old idea for a new world order, the Great Reset. We have a choice to remain passive, which would lead to to the amplification of many of the trends we see today. Polarization, nationalism, racism, and ultimately increased social unrest and conflicts. But we have another choice. We can build a new social contract, particularly integrating the next generation. We can change our behavior to be in harmony with nature again. And we can make sure that the technologies of the fourth industrial revolution are best utilized to provide us with better lives. In short, we need a great reset. Indeed. Well, you will be familiar with that clip by now, surely. But if you're not, I would suggest you go back and watch or rewatch episode 387 of the Corporate Report podcast, your guide to the Great Reset, where I did a a fairly extensive overview of an introduction to the Great Reset and the World Economic Forum's role in it. But that, of course, is not the only agenda item that the World Economic Forum is pushing right now. In fact, as Herr Schwab, the executive director of the World Economic Forum slash would-be ruler of the interplanetary solar system, (laughs) uh, would have you understand this is also part of something called the Fourth Industrial Revolution, which of course is the World Economic Forum's particular branding of that idea that we were going over last week on the podcast, the Great Convergence slash transhumanism slash the extinction of the human species. The fourth industrial revolution will impact our lives completely. It will not only change how we communicate, how we produce, how we consume, it will change actually us, our own identity. And of course gives life uh, to such uh, policies and uh, developments like uh, smart traffic, smart government, smart cities. What we will see is that uh, everything will be integrated into a ecosystem driven by big data and uh, driven uh, particularly by close cooperation also of governments uh, with um, uh, business, civil society. And this revolution will come at a breathtaking speed. It will be like a tsunami. 
And actually, it's not just a digital revolution, it's digital, of course, physical, it's nanotechnology, but it's also biological. And so three dimension provides a particular force to this revolution. So what the World Economic Forum is doing is to promote this public-private cooperation to master the force industrial revolution. And who can forget the you'll owe nothing and you'll be happy bit of snappy corporate PR propaganda that backfired and blew up in the World Economic Forum's face going viral late last year for all the wrong reasons as people pointed to it as an example of the horrific ways that the World Economic Forum and its cronies were seeking to restructure human society in their image. Uh, I will note that the article that that video was partly based on and was promoting uh, was, of course, it had its headline changed. And then, and since then, the, the original link has been completely scrubbed from the World Economic Forum website. It is still available in the Wayback Machine under its changed title, but its original incarnation, at least in the few minutes of searching I did here, um, I can't find it preserved on the World Economic Forum website. It is preserved on third-party sites like Forbes, which has preserved the World Economic Forum post on Welcome to 2030, I Own Nothing, Have No Privacy, and Life Has Never Been Better, a vision of the future put out by World Economic Forum contributor Ida Alkin. And the third thing I will point to is a very big move that's happening at the moment from product to service. I have a friend, he says, every product is a service waiting to happen. If you think about it, I mean, your cell phone, why, why do you want to own your cell phone? Does, how, how many of you own your cell phones? How many knows if the company owns it? It's actually not a lot. I mean, you want the, you want the function, you want the service, right? Why do you want to own a cell phone if you can just lease it? And if you lease, why, why shouldn't you lease your refrigerator or your washing machine or your dishwasher? Or why do you want to own it? Hmm. Let's see, what else is in the news headlines right now? Oh, cyber attacks and ransomware and the new cyber threats to our cyber existence. Hmm, I wonder if the World Economic Forum has anything to say about that. Oh, of course, they are co-hosts of Cyber Polygon. 2020 is a year that has really changed the world. It is thanks to technology that we are able to join the Cyber Polygon entirely remotely. This training is another step in creating a trusted digital environment and fostering open dialogue to discuss even the most challenging cybersecurity issues. Nobody can fight these phenomena, which are only going to increase in the next couple of years in this dynamic technological environment. As this world grows in, in force, and, and this happens throughout the world, it's just a statement of the obvious, you need to protect people properly. How about the transformation of the global food supply and the re-engineering of food systems? Does the World Economic Forum have anything to say about that? 
Welcome to our panelists and our participants today. And uh, thank you to the World Economic Forum for hosting this second public forum on the innovation lever of change, one of four levers of change under the UN Food Systems Summit. It is a great pleasure to moderate today's panel on the role of innovation in transforming food systems for a more prosperous, equitable, and food secure future. The rewriting of the social contract, which you've never seen, never signed, and doesn't actually exist. How about that? Sadia, I, I'd like to ask you to make some closing remarks. And Professor Schwab has encouraged us to reflect, reimagine, and reset. So could you could you talk to us a bit about this in the context of the work of the social new social contract that you lead at the forum? Thank you. Thank you so much, Hilary. I think it's been a very rich conversation and we can probably glean from it five sort of takeaways of what are the new features of this new social contract. The education of our children. Hello, everybody. It is I, your cute and adorable pal Grover, with a message for listeners of the Great Reset. Well, you are in luck because... I know a thing or two about resetting. Mm-hmm. I reset my alarm clock every morning. <laughs> but you are talking about resetting the entire world. How about the great monetary reset into the forthcoming digital currency paradigm? Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the session on resetting digital currencies. The theme of this year's forum, as you know, is a crucial year to rebuild trust. And of course, for those of you working in the digital currency community, it has indeed felt like every year has been a crucial year to build trust. My name is Elizabeth Rossiello, and I am the founder and CEO of AZA. We are the largest non-bank currency broker in Africa, and I was a technology pioneer at the World Economic Forum for the last forum. Okay, okay, I give up. But you get my point. There is nothing of substance that is popping through the newswires right now, which doesn't in some way have something to do with some World Economic Forum pushed or spearheaded or organized event or meeting or panel or book or something along those lines. And just as an example of that, it's become something of a sort of perverse game that Brock and I play in the construction of these videos and podcasts. Uh, it's the one degree of World Economic Forum, the six degrees of Kevin Bacon? No, the one degree of World Economic Forum, whereby anytime some important news setter comes up and there's some sort of important agenda item being pushed, we just do a quick search on the World Economic Forum website to see, I wonder if this person is associated with the World Economic Forum. For example, I even explicitly mentioned that last week on the Your Guide to the Great Convergence, where I talked about Dr. Lena Wen from episode 398 on Science Says, of course. They, she's got the World Economic Forum page. Or we talked about the, uh, the d director of the Policy Horizons Canada that put out that Exploring Biodigital Convergence uh, paper. Uh, of course, she's she was the former head of future thinking for the World Economic Forum. And in fact, in the creation of that episode, when I recorded it, I did note Susan Hockfield, the former president of MIT, who wrote the book about the age of living machines, which I talked about there and which I have read now. And 
is not probably worth dissecting for its propagandistic value, but sort of says exactly what you'd expect it to say from the position you'd expect it she, her to be writing it. But uh, I did note in that podcast, again, she has another globalist bingo card, um, not just the former president of MIT, but the number of major corporations and foundations and other things she's been the head of. Um, it, when I recorded that, I made, I made that remark, but then Brock got back to me. Did you did you check her out on the World Economic Forum? Because lo and, ho- lo and behold, she's there. So we did put that on screen. Um, I didn't mention it when I was recording that podcast because it's it's just a joke at this point. Literally, almost anyone you can think of, there there they are at the World Economic Forum. So it is increasingly obvious that every part of this agenda, the World Economic Forum, has its fingers in those various pies. And the question is, why? And how and who? What is this organization? Where did it come from? How how did it start? Well, how is it funded? What is its agenda? These are valuable questions, which explicitly will not be answered if you turn to the glossy PR propaganda puff pieces of the World Economic Forum to tell you what is the World Economic Forum. recognize that the world is changing at an incredible pace. What the World Economic Forum does is bring together leaders from all different backgrounds, from all different walks of life. And that provides a unique space for new ideas and new solutions to flourish. It's really a very unique place. It's a place where industry comes together to work with government, to work with NGOs, academics, to truly make a difference in the world. Leaders come together because of their own personal commitment to one another to see follow-up to the discussions that they had at our meetings. I'm generally really skeptical about panels and debates and presentations and whatnot, but I've actually been shocked to discover in the last year that it makes a huge difference. The present challenges in a complex, interconnected, fast-moving world cannot be met by one stakeholder group alone. It needs collaborative efforts. Magic moments happen all the time at the World Economic Forum, where the right kind of constituent unexpectedly will come together with somebody else who's looking for exactly that expertise. Not only do the multi-stakeholder groups that we bring together talk, they also make changes. A lot of the answers reside with practitioners, civil society voices, social entrepreneurs, young people and others who are on the ground working with these populations at the front lines and finding solutions. It challenges all your assumptions about your existing worldview, regardless of which part of the world you're from and how much experience you have. Nowhere in the world is there another forum which brings together governments, NGOs, corporate leaders, activists, artists, musicians, to all come together and talk about the biggest issues facing the world. In global challenges, very often there is no right answer. There is a best answer. That best solution only comes from engaging a diversity of stakeholders. Yes, the slickly produced PR puff pieces only go so far to actually telling us the story of the World Economic Forum, but... Never fret, if that's your thing, you can get plenty more of that straight from the horse's mouth. In this case, the World Economic Forum website at weforum.org, where you can learn all sorts of information about the organization, where it came from, and what its officially on-the-record stated mission is. 
For example, on their Our Mission page on the WE Forum website, it says that the World Economic Forum is the international organization for public-private cooperation, except no substitutes, I suppose. And from there, you can read such things as the latest question mark annual report, or at least the latest one linked up from their mission page from 2018-2019, where you can find out all sorts of things about the organization and where it stood as at a couple of years ago anyway, for example, announcing that the Forum and the United Nations have signed a partnership agreement to accelerate the implementation of the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. No surprise there, I suppose. And second, working with the G20, the World Economic Forum will lead a new effort to establish universal norms and guidelines for the implementation of smart city technology under something called the Global Smart Cities Alliance. Yes. Again, probably no surprise, but good to know, and certainly the clues like that, little cookie crumbs in here, give you more uh, ideas of where to go to find out more about the forum, its associated institutions, and its agenda. But if, uh, I mean, I, I would highly suggest you peruse this document on your own, but one thing that jumped out uh, for me specifically was just a little tidbit about their uh, news slash media uh uh, projects. For example, they have something called United for News, a joint venture between Internews and the World Economic Forum. United for News, UFN, is a multi-stakeholder coalition of industry, media, and civil society with a shared mission of supporting and sustaining, sustaining reputable media in the digital age. Reputable media in the digital age? I wonder who that includes. Oh, well, of course, their members include Edelman, Group M, App Nexus, World Association of Newspapers and News Publishers, the BBC's 5050 Project, Sambra Media, Newsgain, and Open Society Foundation, so no surprise there. But of course, the World Economic Forum has its fingers in a lot of pies, including the news industry. Um, you can read the Foundation Statutes, which again are linked up from the website, in which you can find out that the forum and the government of Switzerland have signed a headquarter agreement under the Swiss Host State Act, through which the status of the forum was officially recognized. In particular, the forum is under the supervision of the Swiss federal authorities and is organized as a foundation, specifically a not-for-profit, a public interest foundation, according to Article 80 of the Swiss Civil Code. And if all of that raises your... Uh, We've, raises your alarms, well, congratulations, I think you're thinking correctly, because the Host State Act, of course, stipulates the ways that uh, various organizations and institutions are regulated or not by the Swiss government. The Host State Act and the ordinances on its application enable the Federal Council to pursue a host state policy that is more transparent, predictable, and attuned to Switzerland's interests. At the same time, they provide the institutional benefit, be, uh, beneficiaries established in Switzerland with a clear legal framework regarding their privileges, immunities, and facilities. And you can read more about immunities. Um, immunities may apply to different categories, including, in this case, with the World Economic Forum, international organizations and the persons appointed to them in an official capacity, like, say, their executive director. And, but it does say the extent to which each beneficiary is entitled to immunities under international public law must be determined. So that's part of hashing out the details. And this, the World Economic Forum does make reference to this headquarter agreement under the Swiss Host State Act that was signed on January 23rd, 2015. Although in 
my brief searching, I cannot find that particular document or reproduction of it. So precisely what immunities have or have not been granted to the forum, I cannot say with certainty, but hopefully some diligent researchers out there in the crowd will get to work on digging that up. While they're at it, they might want to take a look at the uh, regulations um, of the World Economic Forum published as part of their statutes as determined by the Swiss civil law. They have to put this into writing, basically talking about their board and how it's formed and its governance policies, etc. Not a whole lot of interest unless you're really interested in the minutiae of how the forum is organized. But one thing I found particularly interesting is that Mr. Klaus Schwab, who created the forum, or at least one member of his immediate family designated by it, is an ex officio member of the board of trustees, and the founder himself designates his own successor in the board and so forth for the latter's succession. So this is an, a, family, a family affair, explicitly so, right there in the regulations of the World Economic Forum. Schwab will always have a place at the table, or one of his heirs. So this is literally a hereditary organization. Interesting. Um, you can go on and read about the leadership and governance of the World Economic Forum, talking about, of course, Klaus Schwab, the founder and executive chairman, but also the globalist jet-set gopher who's who that is the board of the World Economic Forum, including a lot of names that I'm sure you will be familiar with in some contexts, like Mark Carney and Christian Freeland, Kristalina Georgieva, um, Christine Lagarde, of course, people like uh, Al Gore, and, uh, and many others that, again, should be familiar, including Yo-Yo Ma? Really? Okay, well, anyway. Interesting. And you can find links to more puff pieces and things. For example, this document that was produced for their 40th anniversary in 2010. I guess that's their 40th year, um, or heading into their 40th year. A Partner in Shaping History, the First 40 Years, which contains quite a lot of nuggets. There's almost 300 pages of information in here and a lot for researchers to dig up. But after encountering the smiling, friendly, always inviting face of the grandfatherly figure, Klaus Schwab. Oh, isn't he just such a nice, welcoming man? Uh, you can read more about the forum and its founding. The World Economic Forum Annual Meeting 2010 marks the 40th year of the organization, which was founded in 1971 as the European Management Forum. In January that year, the first European Management Symposium was held in Davos, Switzerland. In 1987, the European Management Forum was renamed the World Economic Forum, and the European Management Symposium became the annual meeting, reflecting the expansion of the forum's scope and focus. And it goes on to give more details about the organization and its founding, talking about its uh, inaugural meeting in 1971. It says, uh, again, that it was held in Davos from January 24th to 7th of February and intended to allow top managers of corporations to interact with all their stakeholders. It was also conceived as an opportunity for se senior European managers to learn about the latest management techniques and concepts from the most engaging thought leaders in business, including prominent professors from the top U.S. business schools. And it points out that the resort of Davos, a picturesque town nestled along a valley surrounded by peaks, was the setting of Thomas Mann's The Magic Mountain. It was and remains a place of seclusion, contemplation, recreation, and relaxation, the crisp, clean mountain air vital to restoring health and clear thinking. And in 1971, it had recently opened a Congress Center. 
Davos had all the elements for hosting a productive working retreat for top CEOs. There is no reason at all why these conferences should not be held in places like Davos. The Financial Times commented at the time, Precisely because Davos is a holiday center where people expect to relax, the businessmen attending the Davos conference have shed their business suits, have put on their sports coats, and are meeting in a highly informal atmosphere. Oh, good for them. And it goes on to note some of the interesting characteristics of the forum. For example, the first Davos meeting set a precedent that the forum has maintained ever since. The use of the latest information and communications technology. Borrowing from the U.S. Space Agency's mission control operations, Schwab had a closed-circuit television system set up to cover sessions and facilitate interaction among participants. The forum also created a database of information on the program and on participants to organize working groups and panels. Computer-generated models were employed to analyze the implications of strategies under consideration and predict the impact that any specific allocation of resources would have on their business and their in- and the environment. Monitors displayed the manager's decisions, while color slides illustrating the consequences of these choices were projected on large screens. Ooh, futuristic. Anyway, uh, I would suggest going through this document. I haven't gone through it with fine comb, fine-tooth comb, so I'm sure there's lots of nuggets in here, but you get some interesting pictures and some idea, uh, basically year by year, the various conferences that were held and what took place in them. Some, Again, some interesting tidbits in here, although one that especially caught my eye given my work on China and the New World Order was their 1979 uh, opening the door to China, talking about how this year marked the first time that a delegation from the People's Republic of China participated in the Davos Symposium. In the fall of 1978, Schwab followed with great interest the emergence of Deng Xiaoping as China's paramount leader and the evolution of his open-door policy. Deng had initiated a domestic program known as the Four Modernizations to reform Chinese industry, agricultural, national defense, and science and technology. He was gradually moving to China, moving China to let go of many orthodox communist doctrines and implement a pragmatic socialist market system with Chinese characteristics. Part of that opening the door, the capitalist rotors, etc., which, as I have documented in my work before, was a key part of that transformation of China and the setting up of the infrastructure for it to become the great dragon of the 21st century and being put in that position for new Cold War 2.0, etc. So, again, a lot of interesting little tidbits in here and uh, some things to pick out. But if all of this kind of puff piece PR production is not enough for you. Don't worry, there's still plenty more that you can go through, including, of course, more puff piece PR propaganda uh, videos, etc., that you can glean from the World Economic Forum official website. And then you can start going through all the annual meetings and the various reports they produce and associated blogs and all sorts of things. There is no dearth of information that you can get about this organization and its agenda. Long story short, I would say this is about exactly what they say, that public-private partnership that they are trying to spearhead and be the nexus of. They want to be the linchpin in this new system of stakeholder capitalism, which brings you the best of both worlds of the private capital and the public governments working together. I think there's a name for that type of economic system. Hmm, I I wonder if I can remember what that name is. Anyway, uh, of course, precisely, the World Economic Forum has always sought to be and is increasingly becoming that organization that situates itself at the nexus of the public-private cooperation 
which will be governed by the ESGs and the other sorts of um, frameworks that the World Economic Forum is spearheading, by which they are going to tell the world, essentially, exactly what they can or cannot, should or should not be doing in their individual business efforts to be a part of this stakeholder capitalism. Because you don't own what you own. No, the society at large owns it. And we all have to listen to society's interests in these things. But you can't talk to society, so you might as well talk to the World Economic Forum, who will tell you what society thinks. I think that is the synopsis of what the World Economic Forum is and what it's aiming at. But in order to get more details on this, I think we should start at the start and find out more about Klaus Schwab, who is this international man of mystery who uh, appears in his galactic garb from time to time to make his pronouncements from his Bond villain-esque uh, perch there, telling us about the need for a great reset and all of this. Uh, who is this man? Where did he appear from? Why does he have dozens of PhDs? And, and why is he leading this this organization? Well, uh, unsurprisingly, there isn't a lot that you can really dig your teeth into with regards to this. Uh, the most thorough exploration of this that I have seen comes from Johnny Vedmore at Unlimited Hangout in his well, recent-ish article, February of this year, on Schwab family values. If you haven't read it, I do suggest you do so. It contains certainly some interesting information. For example, on the morning of the 11th of September 2001, Klaus Schwab sat having breakfast in the Park East Synagogue in New York City with Rabbi Arthur Schneier, former vice president for the World Jewish Congress and close associate of the Bronfman and Lauder families. And there's a link there that I suggest you read through if you haven't yet done so into the uh, the mega group and the Maxwells and Mossad and the spy story at the heart of the Jeffrey Epstein scandal. Also, again, an interesting post from the uh, Jewish Telegraphic Agency talking about that 2001 meeting between Schwab and Rabbi Arthur Schneier. Um, but together, the two men watched one of the most impactful events of the next 20 years unfold. Almost literally, they were almost literally within actual sight of this, just uh, there in uh, the Upper East Side, as things were playing out in the financial district. The two men watched one of the most impactful events of the next 20 year years unfold as planes struck the World Trade Center buildings. Now, two decades on, Klaus Schwab again sits in a front row seat of yet another generation-defining moment in modern human history. And... Uh, and to get a sense of where this is going, uh, it, it talks about how, for example, like many prominent frontmen for elite-sponsored agendas, and make no mistake, that's what Schwab is. He's a frontman for an elite-sponsored agenda. Um, but he is trying to position himself to be the frontman. Uh, the online record of Schwab has been well sanitized, making it difficult to come across information on his early history as well as information on his family. Yet, having been born in Ravensburg, Germany in 1938, many have speculated in recent months that Schwab's family may have had some ties to Axis war efforts, ties that, if exposed, could threaten the reputation of the World Economic Forum and bring unwanted scrutiny to its professed missions and motives. And in this unlimited hangout investigation, the past that Klaus Schwab has worked to hide is explored in detail, revealing the involvement of the Schwab family not only in the Nazi quest for an atomic bomb but apartheid South Africa's illegal nuclear program. Especially revealing is the history of Klaus's father, Eugen Schwab, who led the Nazi-supported German branch of a Swiss engineering firm into the war 
as a prominent military contractor. That company, Escher Weiss, Escher Weiss, Escher Weiss, I don't know, would use slave labor to produce machinery crit critical to the Nazi war effort, as well as the Nazis' effort to produce heavy water for its nuclear program. Years later, at the same company, a young Klaus Schwab served on the board of directors when the decision was made to furnish the racist apartheid regime of South Africa with the necessary equipment to further its quest to become a nuclear power. And... That's pretty much the synopsis of what this goes into. There's a lot of information here with a lot of deep dives into very specific documents and things. Obviously, a lot of research has gone into this, so I would suggest you read through it. But as I indicated to uh, to Whitney Webb in our interview earlier this year, of all the things that I've read on Schwab, this goes the deepest, but it still doesn't seem like it goes far enough. There are Again, there is some interesting things about the family and about Escherweiss and what it was doing, etc. But a lot of it seems tangential, or we have to make a speculative leap to young Klaus and what his ultimate motivations are. In fact, in that regard, probably the most interesting part of this entire exploration for me um, came towards the end with the in involvement of the Club of Rome and the World Economic Forum, um, which notes that the most influential group that spurred the creation of Klaus Schwab's symposium was the Club of Rome, an influential think tank of the scientific and moneyed elite that mirrors the Mi World Economic Forum in many ways, including in its promotion of a global governance model led by a technocratic elite. The club had been founded in 1968 by Italian industrialist, or, uh, industrialist Aurelio Pecce and Scottish chemist Alexander King during a private meeting at a residence owned by the Rockefeller family in Bellagio, Italy. Among its first accomplishments was a 1972 book entitled The Limits to Growth that largely focused on global overpopulation, warning that if the world's consumption patterns and population growth continued at the same high rates of the time, the Earth would strike its limits within a century, which is not only debunked nonsense, it is fundamentally wrong. I will, as always, exhort people to read Julian Simon's The Ultimate Resource for the detailed economic refutation of that pseudoscience bunkum produced by the Club of Rome and, unfortunately, heavily promoted in the controlled corporate media. Um, but it, as it goes on to state here, at the third meeting of the World Economic Forum in 1973, Pecce, again, one of the founders of the Club of Rome, delivered a speech summarizing the book, which the World Economic Forum website remembers as having been the distinguishing event of this historical meeting. Now, I would hope that the Club of Rome and its importance, the limits to growth, its propagandistic importance is by now familiar to all of my listeners and viewers, if not, go back to such reports that I've done in the past as uh, Meet Paul Ehrlich, Pseudoscience Charlatan, where I've definitely talked about the limits to growth and the Club of Rome. But uh, in case you might have missed it, you might recall that when I was on Grand Theft World with Richard Grove earlier, earlier this year, late last year, we did talk about the Club of Rome's involvement in that 1973 World Economic Forum meeting. I got one more gem to share with you that I I found this week because I'm reading up on Klaus Schwab. Have you heard of this guy? <laughs> well, yeah. There you go. Bell. Klaus. Speaking like Klaus now. Okay, so uh, he creates the World Economic Forum 1971 at Davos. Uh, it becomes a thing a couple years later where they start calling it Davos. But I just want to show you this 1973 manifesto that these folks got together. The Davos Manifesto. Now, before... I show you that. Here's uh, Otto von Habsburg. 
I don't know who he was in history, and he's with Klaus Schwab. So this is a guy uh, who's related, I guess, uh, to the ruling family of, of, of Europe back in the day. He's nothing to see here. Anyway, we're talking about this. Don't get distracted with that. Uh, at the third European Management Symposium, the Forum, the World Economic Forum, broadened its European focus under the theme, Shaping Your Future in Europe. This Davos meeting was held under the honorary sponsorship of His Royal Highness Prince Bernard of the Netherlands. The Commission of the European Communities renewed its patronage. Two developments dis uh, distinguished this Davos meeting. First, Aurelio Perche, the Italian industrialist, delivered a speech summarizing the limits to growth, a book that had been commissioned by the Club of, the Club of Rome, a global think tank that he founded and served as its first president. The study caused a sensation over after its publication in 1972 for calling into question the sustainability of global economic growth, reiterating some of the same concerns about demographics that the 18th century scholar Thomas Malthus had expressed. The authors examined several scenarios for the global economy and outlined the choices that society had to make to reconcile the economic development and environmental constraints. Sold over 12 million copies. Uh, then they had a code of ethics, and this was called the Davos Manifesto. So this is what they're getting together to do. And the people that bring you the Great Reset today, it's not the first time they all got together and uh, did anything. I just wanted to, to share, because James, you among few people on this planet, you might know who uh, Prince Bernard was and what he had to do, or, or even Aurelio Puche, who sounds like a very nice guy. What, what, is the, what are people missing in that? Why aren't they and it, uh, Well, what sticks out to me is, of course, it always goes back to Malthus with these people. Always, always, always goes back to Malthus, who, um, of course, for people who don't know, uh, has ties to the British East India Company that I'm not going to be able to rattle off off the top of my head. He but taught sure at the you... British East India Company College. Right, right. right. And uh, exactly. People know him as a like a, a pastor or a father or whatever. No, he was a British East India agent, essentially. And they sold opium there, by the way, that addicted people on purpose. Exactly. Yes. It's all part of the illustrious history of that organization. Uh, but yeah, he was, of course, the one who came in and out and said, oh, you know, population is increasing exponentially. Food is increasing arithmetically. If you do the math, basically, we're all going to be dead in 30 years unless we take drastic measures. And that has been clung on to now for well over 200 years and drudged up over and over and over and over. And every generation, lo and behold, they find we're all going to run out. We're going to run out of resources in 20 years unless we do these dramatic, drastic things. And of course, the limits to growth, which it mentions there, the Club of Rome document was just the late, well, at that time, the latest iteration. We've had other iterations since then, obviously. But in the 1970s, part of the um, Ehrlich-led um, revival of Malthusianism and the overpopulation scam uh, which relates back to stories about uh, um, uh, Soylent Green, but I forget the name of the book that Soylent Green was based on. But um, what do you remember the name of that book? No, I just remember the punchline that Soylent Green is people. Yes, exactly. And of course, uh, I think Art Ehrlich wrote the foreword to that book or was in one of the editions as a preface or something. Um, because of course, it's all going back to that because that is their fundamental justification time and time again. Essentially, we are a herd of cattle or of mice, whatever, you know, take your pick. And the overpopulation problem, as you we started off today's uh, episode with, the overpopulation of the herd of mice or whatever it is, is going to create all these problems. So we have to find responsible ways for keeping that in line. And that's why over and over and over, this is what it goes back to. No surprise. I didn't know that about the Davos Manifesto. 
zero surprise that that's in there because it's always at the heart of what they do. And it's all, it, it was at the heart of Gates. Of course, what is his overriding concern? What is the thing that he keeps him up at night? The human population. And he shows in his little videos, he shows the curve. Look, look at the way human population is going. We need to do something to flatten the curve. And uh, that's what these people obsess about. And you are the target of it. Whoever is listening to my voice right now, you are the target of these people. They hate your existence on this planet. You are cluttering up the planet that they want to live on. And that is every single time that's what it goes back to with these people. Of course. Of course. Of course it goes back to Malthus and overpopulation, and the Club of Rome, and the limits to growth. It always goes back to those topics for these would-be rulers of the planet. They are obsessed with this topic. It is almost definitionally true that anyone who wants to be in one of these seats of power has to fret and, and concern their entire existence with the too many useless eaters running around living on this planet. Oh, they're like cancer. They're multiplying everywhere. We need to get rid of them so we can live more comfortably. It always comes back to that. It has throughout the centuries, in the past century and a half, as I have documented and belabored, uh, as you know by now, that obsession has been given the name of eugenics and been given a pseudoscientific gloss to attempt to justify it. And that has morphed through crypto eugenics into the environmental movement and now into the technocratic movement. But of course, it is the driving ideology behind the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, Bill Gates, uh, Aurelio Pache, all of these people. They're all obsessed with this topic. And so thank you to Richard Grove for bringing that out. And as you see, he brought out that uh, 40-year, 40th anniversary document of the World Economic Forum that we were just looking at. He has the actual physical book, because of course he does. Um, I will include, of course, the link to that full conversation that I had with Richard Grove last December. But let's turn, just to put it on the record, because I, I myself was slightly confused when I was seeing that, when he was presenting that information live in real time there, and I hadn't uh, looked at it myself, that Davos manifesto that he mentions is not actually what Aurelio Pache was particularly talking about at that conference, he was giving a, a, a separate talk on the horrible scourge of too many people on this planet. The Davos Manifesto, for what it's worth, for on the record, uh, it was presented and signed in 1973 at their, I guess that would have been their third annual meeting. Um, and it sounds woolly and nice, like most of these documents do. The purpose of professional management is to serve clients shareholders, workers, and employees, as well as societies, and to harmonize the different interests of the stakeholders. And it talks about serving clients, serving investors, serving employers, and the management has to serve society, which again, sounds wonderful. Of course, who could object to that? Serve society. Yes, we have to serve our fellow human beings. That's what the nature of business is, isn't it? But who gets to decide? Who gets to speak for society? Who gets to be that voice? Of course, the World Economic Forum 
purports to be that organization that can bring all the st stakeholders together in this great capitalist enterprise that we're all engaged in, i.e. living, <laughs> and they're going to bring all the stakeholders together and they're going to sort it out for us. They will come down with the classifications, the rubrics, the, the guides, the, the marking procedures by which we can grade this corporation isn't doing enough, this government is falling behind, etc. And they will be the arbiters. That is the ultimate position of control, at least within the management side of Globalist Inc., which is very much an enterprise that is ongoing. And there are, as I've been at pains to point out, it is not a monolithic conspiracy. There are different management teams bidding for control of Globalism Inc. And the World Economic Forum is one of them. And one thing you have to hand it to Klaus Schwab is that he is very good at branding and rebranding and coming up with the catch phrases and terms that seem to position him and the World Economic Forum in the driver's seat of this agenda. So the Fourth Industrial Revolution and uh, the Great Reset, but also Davos Man. Let's not forget Davos Man is a thing, the type of person, you know, that type of person who goes to the annual Davos meeting, Davos Man, etc. These are terms that one way or another Schwab has managed to embed in the popular consciousness. So it is, uh, that, that speaks to some marketing savvy. And to refer back to uh, again, what we were just looking at in the Johnny Vedmore article about the Schwab family values. Again, it should be no surprise that he's obsessed with eugenics, essentially, population control, because, again, if you read that article, you can see the roots of uh, all of those intersection of various, for example, Nazi eugenical sterilization policies in Ravensburg and the hi history of Escher Weiss and all of that. It all comes together. Of course, it makes sense that Schwab, too, would be dedicated to essentially eliminating us, us useless eaters, one way or another, or at least controlling us so that we can't breed willy-nilly. But there are other there are other rabbit holes. There are no end to the rabbit holes you can fall down trying to piece together the mysterious Schwab family, including, here's one that I will uh, offer to you, um, and perhaps a bit of incentive for researchers out there to start digging if you want. Uh, you can find in any number of World Economic Forum publications or even in the New York Times a look at Davos through the years that this is Hilda Stoll, who became, of course, Hilda Schwab when she married Klaus Schwab in uh, right after she was she was billed as a collaborator in the first European Management Symposium, the first Davos meeting held in 1971, and they married shortly afterward. So this is Klaus Schwab marrying Hilda Stoll, who became Hilda Schwab. Now, here's where things get a little bit conjectural, at least as far as I can see. Um, you can go and find this interesting statement archived from a 2010 for, uh, Fortune magazine article in which apparently uh, uh, Klaus Schwab is quoted as saying, in order to fund Davos in 1970, I took a 50,000 Swiss franc loan from a German industrialist. The condition was either to pay him back or join his company, so I was nervous. But don't worry, it was a success, so I managed to pay it back the loan. At least that's the story that he tells. Well, what? What? Some German industrialists swooping in to fund the first devil? Well, that seems significant, doesn't it? Who could that be? Well, you could turn to a, uh, a publication like uh, Bloomberg, which just last year reporting on the annual Davos Symposium, green is the word, Davos Diary, they just happen to note in passing that there is, other than Klaus and his wife Hilda, there's at least one person who was present at the inception, i.e. the first symposium back in 1971, and scheduled to attend again this year. That's 
Wilfred Stoll of Germany's Festo Holding GmbH. Wilfred Stoll? Wait, wait. Isn't that, isn't that Hilda Stoll? And they were both at that first conference. Well, it has been conjectured that Hilda Stoll is the sister of Wilfred Stoll, who is part of the Stoll family that is, uh, that has been involved with Germany's Festo Holding GmbH, which is a large company. And it has been further conjectured that the nameless German industrialist who funded that first Davos meeting was a member of the Stoll family. All the pieces certainly line up, and it does seem to stretch the bonds of credulity to ask us to believe that there were two separate, completely separate Stolls who just happened to be involved with Davos from the very beginning, continues to be involved to this very day, one of whom married Klaus, but it's a totally different, unrelated. But having said that, I can't find... I haven't done a great deep dive, but I, I can't find any official biography or official genealogy that clearly lists Hilda Stoll as being related to Wilfred Stoll. If there are researchers out there that want to tackle that, please do report back to headquarters. We're all interested to hear. But I think that gives you a sense of the types of rabbit holes that one can uh, stumble down here. And particularly important because when you look up Festo Holding, what do they do? Oh, that's right. The Festo company is now involved in creating these weird bionic creatures, these animal robot things that are essentially cybernetic organisms that are designed to mimic biological organisms and and creatures. Oh, you mean like the Great Convergence? Yes, literally. Apparently this Stoll family is absolutely at the cutting edge of the Great Convergence technology. Surprise, surprise, everybody. Who would have believed it? Well, anyway, there it is. So that's that's one example, but even even if none of that is true, and Hilda Stoll is completely separate from Wilfred Stoll and has nothing to do with Festo, and that's all just a coincidence, and it wasn't the Stoll family that lent this money to Schwab back at the beginning. Even so, it's not hard to see that, of course, Schwab is connected to exactly all the usual suspects that you could imagine, Henry Kissinger and many others besides, and uh, that has led him down corridors to explore various avenues and to be in the driver's seat. Oh, look, here's Michael Bloomberg and Bill Gates back in 96, and of course Gates has become a fixture at Davos, etc. Oh, look, Bono sitting next to Tony Blair. Yay, let's let them save the world for us, shall we? And uh, it goes on. Oh, look, they're having a meditation session here in, on, on mindfulness back in 2015. Oh, they just love, the, love people and love the earth and just want everyone to be calm and relaxed while they take over the world with their great convergence robot armies. Anyway, this, this is the type of rabbit hole that one stumbles down very quickly because World Economic Forum again and again and again and again keeps coming up in various avenues of research. So the question then really is what to do with this information. Because again, this is 2021. It's not time to just marvel at the the beast system that's being constructed, but what do we do about this? What can be done with this information? So there's a couple of things that I want to note. First and foremost, I want to note that Klaus Schwab does not run the world. I am not in any way trying to put him up on a pedestal to say that he is powerful or we should all be scared of Klaus Schwab or anything of that sort. I don't want to make him into anything more than he is, which is a sad, pathetic old man who is attempting to steer the world towards his vision of the Great Convergence with brain chips implanted in our heads and all the other craziness that he himself promotes. That isn't me. He himself is talking about this stuff. So he is a sad, warped, pathetic old man who 
presumably is not long for this world. Unfortunately, his vision probably will be. And, of course, the Schwab family is, as we have just seen, constitutionally guaranteed, enshrined a place in the Board of Trustees to steward over the World Economic Forum for the conceivable future. Um, But, yes, first of all, let's not put them on a pedestal. But let's be aware that clearly, as I've said many times now, the World Economic Forum is rebranding the old New World Order into the Great Reset. It's the same thing that we've been seeing for a very long time, just with a different gloss and different packaging. That isn't to downplay the importance of that. Uh, Bidding to be the management team for Globalist Inc. is an important thing in the gopher structure, the middleman structure of this power power grid, and it is important who they place in that position and who gets to dictate what companies thrive, what governments are give, given a passing grade, etc. Oh, the World Economic Forum will come along with their ESG, Environment, Social, and Governance Responsibilities for Corporations, and they'll, they'll come up with the guide by which we grade who, who will essentially be allowed to operate internationally and not in this globalist structure, etc., etc. There's a lot to be said for that. So, Let's be aware of the power of this. But as I say, now that we know that, let's let's look at how we can use this information constructively, at least to further our own research, to better understand this agenda so we can better combat it. And I would like to suggest that that game that Brock West and I have started playing of one degree of World Economic Forum maybe isn't just a game. Maybe there is something useful that we uh, who are interested in researching and better understanding this agenda can actually use by playing that game. Case in point, I have had a few separate, seemingly separate anyway, individuals from Canada, my home and native land, email me this past week to point out Mark Carney, who apparently is in the Canadian news now, for example, National Post, Peter Foster, Mark Carney, man of destiny, arises to revolutionize society. It won't be pleasant. What Carney ultimately wants is a technocratic dictatorship justified by climate alarmism. So this gives you the sense that, yes, Mark Carney is at least in the air, in the political air in Ottawa these days, floating around there, as the prodigal son of Canada, who as I'm sure Canadians in the crowd will know anyway, left his position as governor of Bank of Canada to become the governor of the Bank of England? What? That's quite the leap and not one that I can think off the top of my head anyone else ever having made before. Um, And then stewarding the Bank of England for the past decade plus, and then leaving that post to become the UN Special Envoy on Climate Action. And, oh yeah, by the way, he's also... Of course, he's advising Prime Minister Trudeau on how to steward the Canadian government through the new Great Economic Reset. We're also following a developing story out of Ottawa. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau tapping former Bank of Canada Governor Mark Carney to help craft a plan for Canada's economic recovery. That's all according to BNM Bloomberg. Let's take you to Ottawa, where Michelle Boyer has been digging into the story for us. He joins us now. All right, Michelle, tell us a little bit more about uh, what Mark Carney's role might be. Well, this is a very informal role, Jennifer. Uh, Good afternoon. I could tell you that Mark Carney, boy, he has a long list of credentials, of course, Canada's former, uh, well, the former Bank of Canada uh, Canada governor, the former governor of the uh, Bank of the UK, um, recently left that post after seven years. And now he's back in Ottawa. And I'm I'm told by a number of sources that he is uh, acting as an informal advisor. But we're talking 
rather informal here. This is not a compensated role. Uh, he's having occasional conversations with the prime minister as this government looks to shape policy decisions for the future. We're talking about, obviously, yes, the economic recovery, uh, what social gaps are, are are existing right now because of COVID-19, uh, where the government is, is missing the mark as far as getting help to where it needs to go. And also, how does, uh, how does Canada really climb out of this very, very big hole uh, that we're in? Do want to point out, obviously, Canada, not the only uh, country in dire financial straits because of COVID-19. But uh, Justin Trudeau uh, trusts Mark Carney. And you know what? Around town, Jen, Mark Carney is a name I've been hearing for quite a while. Uh, been talking about him being the next finance minister, even the next liberal leader. Not quite mm. there yet, but you know these are a, a lot of uh, political cards that are that are moving around constantly. Yeah, that Mark Carney, whose name has been swirling around in Canadian politics for most of the past year in this time of crisis. So, what does that portend? Well, in, given that I'm hearing his name from multiple people all of a sudden. I just thought to myself, self, I wonder if there's something here, which is when I decided to play the One Degree of World Economic Forum game. And that's when I discovered, as we have already seen, that Mark Carney, of course, he's not just a member of the World Economic Forum. He's on the board of trustees. He is an important, very profoundly important core member of the World Economic Forum. So what does that mean? What does that tell us? Well, can we derive much greater granular degree of detail about the world that the World Economic Forum is seeking to bring about by drilling down on someone like Carney and his involvement with the World Economic Forum? Well, the answer is yes. And specifically, we can answer that question in about 10 seconds of searching, which will reveal, oh, for example, a panel discussion, a World Economic Forum hosted panel discussion led by Klaus Schwab's daughter, Nicole, and featuring such speakers as Mark Carney and Bill Gates on the subject of carbon markets. Welcome to the session Carbon Markets, a conversation with Bill Gates, Mark Carney, Annette Nazareth and Bill Winters. My name is Nicole Schwab. I'm the co-director of the Platform to Accelerate Nature-Based Solutions at the World Economic Forum, and I will be your moderator for this session. We are delighted to have you here with us for the launch of the final recommendations of the Task Force for Scaling Voluntary Carbon Markets. This task force was launched in the fall of 2020 to answer the following critical question. How can we build well-functioning voluntary carbon markets that can support net zero and carbon negative climate goals? Let's go straight to the heart of the matter and let me turn to you, Mark. What is the role of offsets in the context of a 1.5 degree climate ambition? Well, thank you, Nicole. And uh, let me compliment the, uh, the leaders of this uh, task force. It's a remarkable achievement. Uh, first thing to say is that this carbon budget is very precious uh, on business as usual. So pre-pandemic uh, emissions, uh, we have less than a decade. Uh, of a carbon budget um, uh, to stay remain within uh, one and a half degree temperature increases. So it is a limited carbon budget. And in that context, uh, really a voluntary carbon offset market does four things. Uh, the first, it's complementary, I underscore that, complementary to companies' efforts to reduce absolute emissions. Companies' responsibility, first and foremost, is to reduce their absolute emissions. And uh, as the report says, they need to first reduce then report, including net zero plans, and I'm sure we'll get into the specifics of that, and then, only then, uh, look to offset. Um, the second thing that this does is it is catalytic. It's catalytic not for 
renewable projects in many advanced economies where the economics are absolutely clear, um, they, they are profitable and they will be driven, but they're catalytic for projects uh, that many of which are in emerging and developing economies where the economics are not yet quite there. Um, and this can help tip the balance uh, for those projects to come in. They also, this, these offsets can also be catalytic as part of helping the economics of absolutely essential breakthrough technologies that need to happen for us to ultimately get to net zero. And I'm sure that will come up uh, more clearly because uh, Bill Gates is, has led uh, on those technologies. The third thing is uh, this market is cross-border. Um, this market is being driven, it's a voluntary market, but it's being driven by companies making these net zero commitments most of those companies, the vast majority of those companies are in um, the G7 uh, uh, advanced economies, so-called advanced economies. They will be looking for a high quality, high integrity offsets. And most of those offsets will come from uh, emerging and developing economies. So this is a potentially huge cross-border flow. And then the last thing, and I'll hand back to you, Nicole, is that this uh, market has the potential, prop again, properly structured, to have enormous co-benefits, um, co-benefits for biodiversity, co-benefits for other uh, SDGs, although rooted in a high integrity, highly credible, open, transparent uh, carbon offset market. All right, I'll leave that conversation at that point, but I think you get the gist of that and where it's trending, but uh, if you want to drill down further on the details of the new carbon markets that are being created and how they are going to be, be interwoven in the backbone of global finance going forward, which is going to be an important story, one that I was ramping up to cover in more detail right before the COVID crisis hit. But uh, if you want more detail on that, again, we can use the resources of the World Economic Forum, hopefully against itself. Uh, you might recall that in your guide to the Great Reset, I was pointing out about these transformation maps, not just the COVID-19 transformation map, but the other COVID, or the other transformation maps available at the World Economic Forum website that were being passed around last year as, look at this, they've built this entire chart of thousands of articles in just a few weeks. Clearly, this is all planned. And I pointed out at the time, no, this is part of their transformation maps that have been around and announced and openly available to the public since 2017. And they just created the category for COVID-19 and started cataloging their partner journalism uh, there. Um, but of course, this provides a, a window into all sorts of different agenda items. And of course, one of the agenda items that they have listed is climate change, where you can find out more about investing in climate action through uh, financial and monetary systems, public finance and social protection, institutional investors, uh, private investors, insurance, development finance, infrastructure, etc. There's a lot of money to be made from this scam, as you should know by now. Now, I will note that these transformation maps, other than the COVID-19 one, which they, they provide as a public service because they, they care about each and every one of you, these ones require a login sign up. I'm personally not going to register to log into the COVID, uh, into, sorry, COVID World Headquarters, the World Economic Forum website. Um, so if you do, I suggest VPNs and whatever other precautions you take and on some sort of burner device, uh, don't give them your data, please. But if you do, uh, you can make use of this to better understand what they are trying to sell to the management class of Globalism Inc. Not, again, these aren't the leaders of the world, but they're, they're the people who are in the key gopher management positions, middleman management positions. But for more on the topic, 
And now for the $100 trillion bankster climate swindle and the second most important bank you've never heard of are two places you could start in the Corbett Report archives for more information on that. Uh, but as I say, there's, there's a lot to be gleaned from the World Economic Forum's own propaganda and public panels, etc. This is the, as I've talked about before, the higher order propaganda, not aimed at the gutter swill bottom of the pyramid people, the, you know, riffraff. That's Fox News, MSNBC, that's you know, CNN, whatever. That People can get that kind of bottom tier propaganda. That The management class gets the propaganda like foreign affairs and World Economic Forum panel discussions and things like this. This is the agenda, guys. This is what you have to do to make it somewhere in this world of being a middle class technocratic manager. Um, middle class in the global power structure, that is. So uh, that is one way that we can make use of this information in a productive research sense to better understand the agenda in order to better combat it. Um, there are other things that we can do productively with the information and resources at the World Economic Forum website. For example, we could turn to their Our Partners page to see the types of companies that the World Economic Forum partners with. And I don't know. Let's do a test. What's what's in the news lately? Um, JBS, right? Oh, oh, JBS. All right, they're the cyber attack. We just got hacked, and now it's going to cause food supply disruptions. Exactly in line with the World Economic Forum co-hosted Cyber Polygon 2021 event that's going to simulate cyber attacks disrupting corporate supply chains. Wow, what a what a weird coincidence. And while we're here, JBS, and how about, um, I don't know, oh, Johnson & Johnson. Uh, they're in the news for certain pharmaceutical products. Actually, while we're at it, what other pharmaceutical companies are in the news these days? How about uh, Pfizer? Yep, there they are. Okay. Um, how about AstraZeneca? They're also in the news for their injection products. Um, let me see. Astra AstraZeneca. There you go. Hey, the, you know, this is kind of a who's who of the global corporatocracy, isn't it? So what can we do with a list like this? Well, one, of course, is to research and better understand some of these partners. Again, just knowing things about, like, for example, JBS, and that they are connected into this agenda. Isn't that interesting? But uh, perhaps more productively and constructively, remember we were talking just a couple of weeks ago about boycotts and boycotts. Well, here's a good place to start. If you are constructing your own boycott list, this might be a good place to start. These are companies you definitely do not want to support with your business to the extent that it's possible. Not everyone is, say, personally helping to support a, uh, a J.P. Morgan Chase, etc. But at any rate, if you know of these connections and you are you have the ability to boycott these types of corporations, that's something. Uh, this is a good warning sign. Hey, these guys are World Economic Forum cronies. We don't want anything to do with them. So that's one way of... That's another way of using this information. And there are other suggestions. For example, I have had some correspondence with uh, someone who, I I'm not sure if recently or at any rate, he is actually a member of the World Economic Forum and has signed up specifically so that he can help participate in their surveys and influence them towards the good side, as it were. As you can imagine, I am somewhat skeptical that that is something useful. But, I mean... If you are inclined to take such steps, then it might at least help you to have the inside track on the propaganda before it filters out to the general public. So you might have an inside track on that. And who knows? Maybe you can reform the system from within. I'm not holding my breath on that one. But that's another example of things that people are doing. And far be it for me to tell people what to do or what not to do. 
Everyone's going to confront this agenda in their own way. At the very least, I think it does behoove us to know the World Economic Forum, what it is, how it's been structured, how it functions, and perhaps most importantly, what it is aiming at so that we can better derail that agenda. And as I say, I do not want to build the World Economic Forum up into this arch nemesis. These are the controllers of the world. Of course not. They would like to think so in their own head. Specifically, Klaus Schwab, I'm sure, likes to think of himself in that role, but he is not. He is a sick, pathetic man uh, with a twisted vision of the world and of humanity itself as envisioned in his vision of the Fourth Industrial Revolution. Take his own words and writing on that, not mine. But having said that, again, this is, uh, this is an influential, increasingly influential organization. And as testament to that, I will say not only have I spent a lot more time talking about Cyber Polygon and the Great Reset and the Fourth Industrial Revolution and other, uh, other agenda items that have been specifically branded and packaged by the World Economic Forum over the past year, but I will note this is the first year in the 15 years I've been in the alt-media space researching this stuff, the 14 years I've actually had my website and been putting this stuff out there, that I haven't even... It has only just occurred to me this week. I wonder where Bilderberg is this year. Is there a Bilderberg this year? I know they didn't have one last year, right? Question mark? Well, what about this year? And as far as I can see, there's no official announcement of it. So I'm sure it is taking place. If it is taking place, it would be right round about now. Where? Who's on the agenda this? What's on the agenda this year? Who's who's invited? No one's even talking about that anymore. Has the Bilderberg been eclipsed in the power pyramid? As I say, these are competing for the the management level of the globalist Inc., not the actual owners of globalism Inc. But again, it's an important part of setting the driver, sitting in the driver's seat, and to that end. Who can, dis who can dispute that the World Economic Forum is definitely driving driving the agenda, or at least naming and, 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 and codifying the agenda these days? So it does behoove us to know more about it. I hope that this, this podcast has, at the very least, provided you some more information, background about this organization and what it's aiming at. And as always, I'm going to leave it to you guys out there to continue the work and to report back to headquarters. What can you find on... If you want to dig down any of the rabbit holes we've gone down today or something else entirely related to the World Economic Forum, please do report back, leave comments, share this information with others. I think it is important for us to be doing this right now so that, as always, we can better see the agenda and hopefully confront it and derail it. All that being said, as always... All of the links to everything cited today will be in the show notes for today's episode, corbettreport.com slash WEF. Just go there. It will take you directly to the show notes for today's episode, the audio and video downloads. I hope you guys will make use of this resource. As always, that's what it's there for you to do. It is a public service provided by myself and the Corbett Report to you guys. So make use of it as you see fit. On that note, we're going to leave it there for today. James Corbett, CorbettReport.com. Looking forward to talking to you again very shortly.